You're listening to Two for Tea, a podcast produced in association with Ario Magazine. I'm your host, Iona Italia. This is a podcast about politics, society, science, and art. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. For early access to episodes, support us at patreon.com slash ario, A-R-E-O, or patreon.com slash twofertea. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest this week is Simon Prentice. Simon is an interpreter, translator, and the head of a bilingual production company. And he is the author of the book, Speech, How Language Made Us Human. I thought when I um, first saw the book that it was going to be um, an evolutionary biology or evolutionary psychology study. But actually, I would describe it as a philosophical work um, that is deeply informed by science, a very wide-ranging um, philosophical work. It's, it's like the kind of platonic ideal of the sort of intellectual all-night conversations I used to have with friends when I was at Cambridge, except at a much higher level, more eloquent, better researched. Um, I found it hugely enjoyable, though I do think some chapters were better than others. There were several standout chapters for me. And one of them was the very first chapter, which was about the movement from uh, how language is about a movement from the analog to the digital, a theme that recurs in the book. And I believe you're going to read us a passage from that. Yes, well, I thought I would. Welcome. Hello and welcome. Yes, I thought I'd start with um, the the very first section, which really contains the essence of that thought that you've just referred to. So, um, without further ado, our mysterious magic. Have you ever lost your voice? If so, you'll know how frustrating it is not being able to tell people what you want, to express your feelings, or to communicate anything beyond what's possible with simple gestures. We take language so much for granted that we don't normally notice how much we completely rely on it. But try not saying anything for an hour next time you're with friends. It's a hard thing to do. Not being able to speak means you get left out of the loop, simply because you can't join in the conversation. Without a voice, your presence just slowly starts to fade away. But at least you can still understand what's being said. Imagine you couldn't understand either. That's what it's like to find yourself living in a culture whose language you don't speak. You're stuck in your own world, cut off from the very thing that makes us human. Without language, we are back to our animal origins, able only to show our most basic feelings. We start out like that, after all. As any parent knows, until they learn to talk, a child is no more than a rather cute, very helpless pet. Whatever it may have been wrong about, the Bible was certainly right about this. In the beginning was the word. It all begins with words because without them, we would simply be what our genes alone would make us, a vulnerable, largely hairless species of ape, trapped with our own sensations, left guessing at what everyone else is feeling. No wonder most animals are so jumpy. With no language, you're on your own, 
unprotected from the worst fears of your imagination, limited to creature comforts and animal cunning. Without words to define and discuss them, there can be no beginnings, no ends, and no way of measuring the spaces in between, and so no culture, no technology, no civilization. Genetically, all that seems to separate us from our primate cousins is a tiny sliver of goo, a mere percentage point of a genome that we largely share with most of the other creatures on our planet. Yet the difference between a chimpanzee and a cosmonaut is literally astronomical. DNA doesn't even begin to explain that difference. Language, however, does. That's because language is the killer app that trumps everything else. It's the killer app because it allows us to share ideas and pool our awareness as a species. To adapt a famous image, if I have an apple and you have an orange and we exchange them, we still have just one fruit each. But if I have an idea and you have another idea and we exchange them, then we each have two ideas. It's the magic of words that makes that possible. Multiply that process across a whole community and you suddenly have an exponential growth in consciousness. Being born into a world with language means we are no longer limited to our own individual ideas and perceptions, but have potential access to all the ideas of our community, effectively creating a group brain. It's ideas that make the difference, and language is what allows us to transmit them. As tricks go, it's pretty impressive. Just by making a few noises with my mouth, I can transfer a thought from the inside of my head to yours without having to do anything else. I don't have to make any gestures, helpful though they might be. I don't need any special equipment. You don't even have to be able to see me. In fact, you don't even have to know who I am. That's powerful magic, and it doesn't stop there. Through the extended magic of writing, with language I can travel in time, communicating ideas to you, as I am now, long after I originally thought them, wrote them down, or had them published. I may already be dead by the time you read them. It doesn't affect the communication. You don't even need to be able to speak the language I wrote in. You could be reading this in translation and still be able to understand what I mean. Like all magic, its power to amaze relies on the fact that we're not really aware of how the trick works. The trouble with language is that it comes so easily to us. Whatever country or culture we're born into, we have mastered our mother tongue by the time we start school, have picked up a perfect native accent along the way, and yet have absolutely no idea how we managed to do it. Like learning to walk, it just comes naturally to us. But as we discover as soon as we run into another one, language isn't as natural as we think. Language may be the one thing that distinguishes us from other animals, but it's really not like walking at all. We all walk in the same way, more or less, but the way we talk can be very different. At least, it can seem like that. Our first exposure to another language, especially if it's unrelated to our own, can be quite a shock. Suddenly the noises coming out of other people's mouths make no sense at all. But in fact, we are all doing the same thing, just in different ways. We're using simple combinations of sound to express and transmit meaning, though the sounds we use will not all be the same, and the ways in which we organize them may be very different. In essence, though, the trick of speech is identical wherever it is found. We're just tagging our awareness with a digital suite of noises and using that as a tool to share it with others. A digital suite of noises? Really? What's surprising is that this seems surprising to us. But then most of the time we don't think about language or how it works any more than we think about how our body works 
or even know very much about it. Though it's so central to everything we do, language remains largely invisible to us. We use it constantly and depend completely on the power it gives us to express the subtlest nuances of thought and feeling. But we still use it almost unconsciously, with little awareness of the ridiculously precise tongue dance going on inside our mouths. We take it totally for granted, and if we do think of it, it's generally with a sense of wonder at the fact that it exists at all. So where did language come from? When did it start? Why are we the only animals that can speak? Remarkably, there are still no certain answers to these questions. Like many things that humans have wondered about through history, the traditional explanation has been that language is a God-given gift. The Christian world is familiar with the stories in the Bible, but this is not just a Christian story. Almost every culture around the world has some tale of how humans were granted the gift of speech by a supernatural being. To modern ears, that can seem a less than satisfactory explanation. But the current thinking about language and how it evolved is hardly any better. The leading theories still follow an idea made popular by Noam Chomsky in the 1960s, that some unknown genetic mutation must have endowed our species with what Chomsky called a language acquisition device, a mechanism that allows us to speak. But in the ongoing absence of any firm evidence, that doesn't really help us any more than the religious explanation. True, we may now know that there are specific areas in the brain that handle speech, and have discovered a gene that is apparently associated with certain aspects of language production. But that's still a long way from explaining how language started, and how it developed. This astonishing ability of ours cannot have sprung fully formed into existence. There must have been a process. But the origins of this process are hard to discern. When we start to think about it, language seems so complex, so full of bizarre rules of grammar which we can struggle to understand, that it seems almost impossible that it could have just emerged naturally. Anyone who has felt the frustration of trying to speak a foreign language without making mistakes knows how difficult it is to follow the obscure patterns behind subject-verb agreement in French and Spanish, or the seemingly random use of onomatic peak words in Japanese. It doesn't help that the mathematical acrobatics so typical of the generative grammars in Chomsky's work are likely to leave the average person's head going gangang, a neat Japanese expression that means pounding, amongst other things. How could such complexity have just evolved from simple origins? Well, we already know that life itself has done exactly that. Like every other species alive on our planet today, human beings are the result of a mind-boggling 3.5 billion years of natural evolution nearly three billion years of which were spent reproducing as little more than single-celled organisms. The extraordinarily complex structure of the human brain is the result of countless generations of slow change. So in trying to puzzle out the abstract structures of language from its current level of development, we may find that we've been looking at it from the wrong end of the telescope. Just as our complex early ideas about the nature of the universe gave way to the simplicity and elegance of the Copernican model, once we realized that the sun was at the center of the solar system, not the earth. It's quite possible that the development of language was a much simpler affair than we have imagined. The almost infinite palette of colors that we are able to see derives from just three basic types of color receptor in our eyes. Our rich sense of taste and smell also emerges from a very limited range of primary flavors. That's because our brain is fantastically adept at conjuring complexity from simplicity. Much the same may be true of our ability to speak. I think that gives people a, a really nice flavor of your writing. Okay. Um, and a sense of just how, um, 
how eloquently lucid it is. You're you're a really beautiful prose um, writer. Thank you. Um, I'm reminded of Steven Pinker's style and also of David Deutsch when I'm reading the book, um, both in subject matter and in the kind of stylistic treatment of it. Yeah, it's philosophy, but um, but it's not philosophy in the in a kind of abstruse sense. It's not, philosophy. Not as we know it. Yes. <laughs> no, <laughs> um, it's philosophical musings uh-huh. um, a, around around a topic. Yeah. Um, and in that sense, it's it, that's what reminds me of the Pinker and Deutsch's work. Right. So I think if you're a fan of those people, you will enjoy this book. Mm. Could you? Um, so you talk about um, the way in which you describe language as a suite of digital sounds, mm. and you talk about this um, evolution from analog sounds to digital sounds in the development of human speech. From and you differentiate human speech from animal noises in that animal noises are largely analog, and human speech is digital. Yeah. Could you run us through um, what you mean by that? Okay. Um, yes, let's start with animal sounds, perhaps. The, when you, when you, if you have a pet, you'll obviously be aware that it can attempt to communicate with you, or does communicate with you, all animals communicate with each other. But they, they don't, the, the sounds that they use to do it are perhaps rather than analog, which tends to put people off as I've discovered in talking to people, uh, holistic perhaps. They're, they're single units. When a dog barks, it barks. There's no, the, the bark is not broken up into bits that it can reorder and change around like we can with, with our phonemes when, when we speak, the consonants and vowels that, that we are familiar with. I think the best way to think about it is really to think not so much of speech, but to think of writing. Think of the letters, the alphabet. We have 26 letters in the Britain in the English alphabet, although um, not many people know that that number is quite different for different languages, um, Spanish and Italian, for example, different numbers. But the we, we have a fixed number of digits that we use, which we call letters. And they're just, they can be rearranged in any order we like, more or less, so there are some rules, but um, that allows us to generate the million words that are allegedly part of the uh, English lexicon, just using 26 letters. Now, the same thing is true with the sounds that we make when we speak. Now, we're, we, we do that because we are able to combine them, and that's, that's something that's obviously known and talked about in, in linguistics. It's, it's the combinatory nature, difficult word to say, combinatory nature, of of sounds that allows us to make words but what i'm trying to say when i say digital and analog is that actually what's going on there is a fundamental switch between just making a noise that represents something classically for example the uh, vervet monkeys make three different alarm calls that warn for a snake or a bird or um, a leopard they're just noises, and they they don't combine them or use them in any other way. But we now know that there are some animals that that do make some combinations and are starting down the path towards 
a fully digital use of sound. And the key thing is that if you're just making simple sounds, you're quickly going to run out of noises that you can make that are sufficiently distinct. But once you start combining them and using them just like numbers, if you think of numbers, when we have 10 digits, if you include a zero, that we use to make all the numbers that exist, you can write any number you like just using a combination of nine digits. So the same is true with sounds. Just by making having a limited set of sounds, which you can then combine, you can create an infinite vocabulary of words. And that, in my understanding of it, is the key to language, because unless you have a sufficient number of words, then there's nothing for grammar to work on. You can't get started with grammar unless you have a sufficient critical mass of words. So the question is, where do words come from? And the answer is, they come from the digitization of of noise, of animal sounds. Is that too long or? <laughs> no, no. Does that help you understand it? Yes, absolutely. Uh, so you talked about you talk about that in relation to the the origins of human language. Yeah. <laughs> um, you offer some speculations in um, in an appendix to the book, which was actually one of my favorite parts of the book. Interesting. An unpublished paper that you sent to. Uh, submitted to Nature, Science. which was, um, was a, a hypothesis about how language might have evolved. Yeah. Yes. Uh, well, that, that's really essentially a, a sort of a, a more scientifically um, rigorous uh, explanation of what I've just said. Um, it's sort of links to all the various papers which um, provide the, the background to, to my thinking. Um, but it, it, again, it's, is is trying to say that we need to understand that the fundamental change that allowed us to speak was that combination of sounds. And if we want to think, well, where's the evidence? To me, one of the, the smoking gun and the thing that really set me running down this track was the understanding that, well, I knew from, as I'm a Japanese speaker, I've known for a long time that Japanese has a relatively small number of sounds, only 20 phonemes. And whereas English, as I'm sure you know, has, has 44, although not many people who are not linguists seem to know that. Um, so Japanese is able to express itself, or one is able to express anything one wants in Japanese as equally well as, as in English. So the question is, well, why would Japanese have, have less phonemes? And then if you look more broadly at the picture, you see that, that there, is a, there is a trajectory that languages, and obviously there are many exceptions and it's not a, you know, uh, it's not a, um, an, um, a clear cut thing in the sense that, that there are many exceptions along the way. But as a general cline, to use the technical term, the phonemes, the number of phonemes used in languages drops away as you move out of Africa. I mean, the two extremes are the, the largest, the language of the largest number of phonemes that's known about are the, uh, the Khoisan the languages the, spoken by the San people in, in southern Africa, which the so-called click languages, which have up to about 144 um, phonemes. And on the other hand, in the, the jungles of, of Brazil, uh, the one that's been most studied, I think, is uh, talking about spoken about is um, the Piraha language, which Daniel Everett has written at length about. 
Um, they have only 11 phonemes, or apparently in the case of the, the female language, only 10. So that, that's an extreme range. But the fact that it, it appears to have dropped away as we moved out in this human expansion out of Africa um, underlies the, um, the theoretical consideration that actually you don't need a large number of phonemes. You only need, well, with, with the Paraha language, only 11 phonemes. You, they can get to a, a vocabulary of 25,000 words in three syllables. Um, that's plenty enough for most people to express what they need to say. And besides, four-syllable words are, are completely normal in English. We don't have any trouble using four syllables. So you don't actually need a large number of phonemes to make a, a, a sufficient vocabulary to be able to communicate fully. So the question would then be, well, why did we start? Why did we ever use a large number of phonemes? And one way of thinking about that will be, well, that's how it started. We started by combining together a large number of noises that we were being used in an analog or holistic way to communicate things. For example, you might say, if I want to attract your attention, I could say, Psst, or there are, there are all these words that still exist within our languages that are not really, they're sort of uh, non-word words, if you like, sort of noises like blowing a raspberry. If you do that, people know what you mean, but it's not really a word. So if you imagine that language began with a whole series of noises like that that were used, and then because there's a limit to that, slowly, naturally, those combinations generated larger um, numbers of words, and we were able to, that, that's how you, you get into speaking. You make some lovely uh, comparisons between the way in which the kind of digital nature of language is especially written language, but mm. spoken language as well, mm. that it's the, um, the, the kind of richness of language is not in the number of individual units, but in the number of ways in which we can combine a small number of units yeah. with, um, with the kind of the way in which we have increasingly discovered that reality material reality mm -hmm. is digital rather than analog yeah. and you didn't give the specific example but i was thinking of the um evo devo revolution mm -hmm. and i'll refer readers back to the podcast interview i did with sean b carroll um the author of endless forms most beautiful who is mm -hmm. one of the scientists most closely involved in that revolution of uh, evolutionary biology thinking in the 1990s, which you're probably familiar with. Mm -hmm. um, so Evo Devo uh, showed that most um, phenotypic changes don't come about as a result of mutations to the DNA, um, but mutations to actual coding genes, um, but by using the same genes, but just in different um, places, right. just changing their function, um, which is done at the moment of encoding the genes right. during the process of embryological development. Mm. Well, I can't speak to in, in great detail to to genes as such. Uh, that's not an area I'm, I'm particularly familiar with. But the analogy I, <clears throat> I do make 
and it's very interesting that, that what you, what you say, I'll, I'll look into that, but um, just at, at the very fundamental level of how DNA works, um, the digital nature of that and not so much the, the coding itself, um, which is, is in a, in a way sort of the first step. It's all like, if you take the, uh, example of letters for example i mean the the way in which we write letters in english certainly sans serif script it's it's very it's made of sort of a very small number of curves and lines to make each each letter so you could probably reduce it down to about four or five actual lines that you need and curves that you need to make all the letters of the alphabet but the the thing that's really striking about the way um way proteins are constructed is the analogy with with words because you have amino acids there's 20 amino acids that the body uses and those 20 amino acids make all the proteins that we have in our our bodies which people disagree about the the number but we're talking about tens of thousands certainly if not more of, of proteins and and this so it's it's an almost irresistible analogy between having 20 amino acids and tens of thousands of proteins and having a, a limited number of phonemes or letters and, and tens of thousands of words which are what the average person vocabulary actually is it's, it's exactly the same process which tends to make me also think that that digitizing process in terms of the origin of language is uh, is a fundamental is a fundamental process that, that we see in in other parts of of the universe that we find ourselves in. Yeah, it's extraordinary. Um, one, I'm I'm shifting the topic a little bit now. So a lot of the book is is about talking about the um, revolutionary benefits that language brought to us as a species because it enables us for the first time to share our thoughts and to directly and more precisely share our feelings Mm. and therefore to have a clearer idea of what is going on with it inside the minds of those who surround us than animals are able to do. Um, We don't have to just guess based on behavior mm. and we also when we have conflicts we can settle conflicts through mm. uh discussion and we can attempt to to solve them through discussion and persuasion we don't have to solve them as animals do through um displays of threat displays or conf or physical conflict and um but you also talk quite a lot in the book about um language and the accretions of culture, religion, nationality, and other forms of kind of imposed identity, mm. beginning right with the name, with your name, which was, uh, which feels, may feel like an intrinsic part of you, but was imposed upon you by your parents chose your first name in most cases, and your surname was simply inherited. Mm. And the way in which that provides a it forms a kind of barrier between the unmediated mm. sort of direct experience. I'm going to just read a little yeah. passage um, to show people what I mean. And um, I think that these were the 
chapters on identity and on music, mm. on the sort of Dionysiac qualities of music, mm. um, yes. I would call them, um, and the way in which music creates meaning without words, were, for me, two of the standout chapters in the book. Um, I'm going to read a little passage from this. Um, uh, this chapter is called Who? The Trap of Identity. Um, there's only so much attention you can pay to anything. And our obsession with words, the attention we pay to the virtual world of thought, reduces our ability to pay attention to the only certain information we have. Pure sensation. Unfiltered. Unfiltered by thoughts about what it is. Even with language, our senses are still the only direct information we have. But words allow us to question and compare what we are seeing, what we are sensing, learn from other people's experiences, and create a world of ideas that let us modify and classify the sensory data coming in. To remind yourself how abstract the, that world is, turn back to the last page, and you've inserted a blank page inside the book. and. This time, as you gaze on the blank page, allow yourself to think about the first thing that comes into your head. In this act of thinking, you're suddenly somewhere else. And that's the magic of words. Using them takes you away from where you are. I th think that was just an amazing insight. Just think what happens when you are on the phone. You're with the other person in your head, removed from the particular space you're in. Reading does the same thing, but in a more focused way. In a very real sense, language is the first form of television. Words take you on a journey away from where you are. If I say an elephant in a red dress comes into the room holding a blue ball, you immediately have a very clear image of that in your head. You can't help imagining what it looks like as if you were there. In some ways, it's better than television because the image is specific to you. Two people can read the same sentence and see very different scenes. Whereas if you see something on television, you have no choice about how it looks. Books and stories before them were our first films. And that is our secret, the extraordinary advantage that language gives us. By giving us the power to think, it allows us to become aware that we are aware and changes our entire relationship with the world. Animals, who are simply aware, can act on instinct, just a calculation in the end, and do whatever seems to be best based on the information available to them at the time. Words not only allow but compel us to stand back and take another look and reconsider what our instinctive thinking might be telling us. They drive a wedge between sensation and response, corrupting Hamlet's native hue of resolution with a pale cast of thought. It is from that pause, the pause to consider other options, that consciousness and a sense of identity emerges. So I thought that was very interesting, your kind of idea that in one sense language is what enables us to connect with other people. Yeah. But on the other hand, it's also the thing that enables us to um, place labels and descriptions on ourselves that that distance us from the immediate 
basis of experience and which which is the thing that we all share yes and depending on the labels that we use can also trap us into a way of thinking that then becomes a problem when we meet other people who have decided that their way of thinking about it is is the right way <laughs> i mean the, uh, the the second third and fourth chapters of the book are, are called respectively um how the trap of culture because i i my my the conceit of the book is that there are three essential questions that occur once you that have to be answered once you've got language you, the, the, there's a set of issues that then you can start talking about how how do you do things you know, there's all, all kinds of things that you the decisions that have to be made if you're going to um share a life together and do things you have to i give the example of, of just simply how do you talk about time for example as that has to be divided up and considered in in a specific way that that's going to be different depending on what group you belong to um so there's the how question and then there's the why question why are we here what's going on why you know and that that's sort of at the root of most religious answers that that are really trying to reassure us that there, there is some reason why things are the way they are and then there's the the who question who who are you who am i <laughs> who where do i belong what's all, all the things that stem from those three questions who sorry how why and who and and they are all on the one hand they are what allow us to become aware of ourselves and develop a culture and a civilization and all that goes with that and on the other hand to the extent that we become or only know those the solutions that that we are immediately presented with when we we're born and brought the culture that we are brought up in that becomes a trap because they're only one that that, that is is just one way of doing things <laughs> it's, it's a provisional solution that has become sort of by tradition the only solution and to the extent that it's seen as the only solution that that poses a problem for human cultures in contact with each other yeah it's also i think in the in the book you really um bring home that the artificiality of many of the identities that we feel most mm. strongly connected with yeah. um and you create this lovely sort of um sense of estrangement from the familiar a couple of examples that sprang immediately to mind is um you were talking about um a japanese obviously has two um has two alphabets i guess three alphabets right well, or three well, different well, ways of writing one of them is right. an alphabet well, one's just a lexicon but you know it, it, uh, yes there are two there are two alphabets in two phonetic alphabets yes um and um you said this may seem strange to an english speaker but english also has two separate phonetic alphabets small letters and capital letters yeah um and also uh, we, you were just talking about time so the 24 hour cycle of the day is a given because of the um the position of our our, our planet's distance from the sun and rotational period etc but the way in which we divide up that mm. um so ev everybody every culture must have seen a dawn and dusk and a 24 hour cycle but the way in which we 
divide up those hours is completely cultural. Yeah. Why do we think of it as 24 hours as opposed to, I don't know, mm. 5.6 blobs? Well, <laughs> um, 10 would be a good place to start, wouldn't it? You'd think yes. 10 would be um, pretty sensible. Yeah. Mm. And why do we think of it as 60 minutes per hour and 60 seconds per minute? Mm. Um, and it all goes back to Babylon, bizarrely enough. It mm. all goes back to Babylon? Yes, the Sumerians. They were the ones who first came up with oh, yes. 60, the idea of 60 as a, as a divider for hours and minutes and everything else. It's, it's a fascinating um, story. It's fascinating to think that we're still using a system that was devised 5,000 years ago, even though there have been other cultural you know, solutions along the way. But the one we seem to have settled on is... There's a very old one that originally derives from the way you count 12 using your thumb to count the joints on the fingers of one hand, right? You've got four fingers, each with three joints on, and you can use your thumb to point at each individual joint. And that was their way of counting, and they got to 12. And then you've got five fingers on the other hand, so you can multiply five by 12, and then you get 60, and that's it. That's the origin of that system. And you think, good Lord, how astonishing. It's really, um, I, was, um, I was thinking a lot during the chapter on identity um, about um, why it is that we feel, you talk about how um, Japanese feel, people feel that they are special, or many Japanese feel that they are special, that there's a special kind of Japanese-ness, which other people don't share. And you gave the um, uh, contrasting example of the, uh, I can't remember what that genre of Japanese um, singing is called. Enka. Um, mm -hmm. Enka. Mm. That um, young black guy who has become a very successful yes. Enka singer. Jero mm. is his name. Yes. Um, do you want to tell that? retell that story for listeners oh, okay yeah well it's a it's a fascinating um enka is sort of like uh country music if you like if you think of a country music in america it's a sort of it's a core um cultural uh, you know if you if you go to japanese restaurants or you any sort of um party or whatever the chances are you're going to hear enka as a sort of background um soothing uh, sort of cultural, it's very sort of sentimental in the way that country music is sentimental and, and sort of expresses all those emotions of sort of, uh, you know, um, sorrow and sadness and, and wistfulness and regret and all the things that country music is uh, known for, is, is in Enka. So it's, it's thought as being very Japanese. Now, uh, uh, Jero, who is um, American, he was brought up in... Um, Philadelphia, I think. I can't remember offhand now, but it's certainly in the east coast of America. And he had a Japanese grandmother. He's black, but his, his uh, grandmother was Japanese. And he was essentially brought up by her. And he learned to speak Japanese with her. And more particularly, he fell in love with Enka. So he, as a young child, he used to sing along to this stuff. And then as an adult, he went to Japan and he entered a competition for um, young Enka singers, and he won it. And uh, he was then sort of 
latched onto by some by a, a Japanese television company who thought they would uh, they would play a joke on their one one of their esteemed musicologists. So they they brought him into the studio and they had him and they explained that there was a new talent that had been found and they had him sing behind a screen and the uh, the critic was listening to it and the audience was listening to it and they were all going crazy it was like this is this beautiful voice who is this person then they took the screen away and this, this black hip-hop dude in his you know baseball hat back to front and wearing the you know the typical uniform of the of the hip-hop tribe and the, it was, they were they were just astonished i mean the the faces on 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 the audience were just something to behold because he had just shown that this thing that they considered to be iconic in their culture could be mastered and done better in some ways by somebody else and you know i use that example because it's very graphic but the idea that something is so particular to your culture that no other culture could possibly have it is is kind of endemic i think i think you'd be hard to find any culture in the world that doesn't feel that way about itself which isn't a problem to the extent that you know we can all live peacefully together but then when you hear for example president putin talking in recent weeks and months about the the russian the special russian spirit that is so unique and cannot be you know under, and you just think ah please can we can we have a meeting and just get over this <laughs> we, we all yes. feel that way and and it's the same at the individual level you know we all have this secret sense that we are right and everybody else is you know i mean that's an inevitable sort of sort of go to position when you're feeling sort of put upon but no it's not true you know i mean yes we are all individually different but not to the extent that it makes us special that we can then you know invade other countries or invade other people or, or whatever you know it's it's an illusion it's an illusion that is entirely down to to language in my book um absolutely i mean in if we're talking about what it means to be um Japanese. I, I think I'll use a different example from Japanese because um, people can at least point to a um, physical, specific physical characteristics, hmm. um, like the epicanthic fold of the eye. Yeah. Although that's not what they mean when they say the spirit of kind of Japanese. No, no, they don't mean the singer no, no, has a particular absolutely. eye shape. No, 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 no. no. Um, but it is. It does allow people that kind of cop out. So I'm going to use my own example instead. Um, so I am a Parsi mm. because my father was Indian Parsi, uh, Indian Zoroastrian. Yeah. Um, and in one objective sense, yes, that's true because you can trace my father's ancestry back at least a few generations. Yeah. Um, and you can see. You can tell from my surname which is was originally Ita Walla, which is brick man oh. um and became corrupted later to Italia. It's although it's really unlikely it's actually a Parsi surname. Um so uh, in one sense you can say um there is a Parsi thing there, but what is the there that is there? <laughs> if someone um if some other Indian, for example, grew up in um, the Parsi um, neighborhood and was initiated in the Zoroastrian rites and went to the fire temple and learned 
Parsi, Gujarati. Um, nevertheless, the community would not consider that person Parsi. And why not? What's the extra kind of magic thing that you're somehow yeah. inheriting in your in your DNA? Yeah. Um, I find that that seems to me to be an entirely fixed, fictitious overlay. Yeah. And ancestry exists and population groupings exist. Yeah. Um, and you could say something like, if you're a Parsi, you're more likely to have certain um, rare blood types. But most Parsis don't have those rare blood types. So is, is that kind of magic based on a greater statistical propensity to be an a, have AB negative blood? Um, that's, that's not what people actually mean but it's the only thing that's that is concretely there yes no i mean the rest is language the rest is language absolutely language and culture which stems from from language i mean the example i give in the book is of the uh the the two identical twins who were separated at, at birth do you remember that there's um yes um yes a german mother and a jewish father and they met I think uh, in the in Caribbean somewhere, but anyway, they were separated more or less a few months after being born. The mother took one of them. This is in the 1930s. She went back to Germany, and her young, the son that she took with her, became um, a Hitler Youth, as so many young boys would have done at the time. And his brother, meanwhile, was um, was taken. I think to originally to South America and then ended up going to Israel and joined the Israeli uh, army. And they, when they finally met in the, I think they were in their early twenties. Um, they, the extraordinary thing was that they had many sort of physical characteristics that they shared. Extraordinary things like sort of um, sneezing explosively to attract attention. <laughs> Um, and they both had little um little mustaches and they wore the same type of glasses and there were various it's detailed in the book the various things that were very similar about the way they appeared physically and even their mannerisms but they had completely different worldviews i mean one obviously he you know he'd gone to Israel and, and had absorbed all, all that in, in Israel. And the other was, was a Nazi. And, and they never saw eye to eye in their, throughout their lives. But otherwise, they were identical. Still, yeah, that's, yeah, that's even, extraordinary. They needed an interpreter when they first spoke, by the way, too. They couldn't <laughs> talk to each other. So, I mean, that's a, that's a graphic example of, of, of that whole thing. So the potential that we have, I mean, you could take one, a child from any culture and bring it up, you know, if born into one culture, if you, early enough, if you took them and put them in any other culture, as, you know, many examples uh, through the history of immigration, you know, um, they turn into completely different people, culturally speaking, because it's all artificial. This just happens to be where you grew up and where you learnt your calibration. It's just about calibrating, really. It's like, how do you calibrate reality? How do you learn to discriminate between the various things that you're seeing and experiencing in order for you to communicate with others? And if you learn one language and do it that way, then that's just as good as doing it any, any other way. But the problem is we, we tend not to think that. We tend to think our way is the, is the only way, usually because we don't know enough about another culture to be able to tell. 
I mean, that was for me the thing I think about going deeply into Japanese and um, discovering that they they had just as many, uh, you know, but the, their literature, their culture in, in so many ways, poetry, art was just as profound and interesting as anything in in the West. And I mean, that should be obvious. But unless you actually go and find it out for yourself, it isn't necessarily obvious. And it's, I used to particularly notice this when I was talking with Japanese people and something would come up and they would say, I would say something and they'd say, oh, yes, I, I see you've, um, you've taken that expression. I'm, oh, the one that sticks in my mind, I didn't put this in the book, but an old man once said to me, silence is golden in Japanese. And I said, oh, I didn't realize you'd taken that, exp that expression from English. And he said, what? <laughs> and he said, well, that's an English expression. He said, no, it isn't. No, it's a Japanese expression. So we had a sort of a bit of an argument about whether which came first. And probably neither did. Probably they both have, this, you know, at some point, the idea that silence can be a wonderful thing. And one should just at some times, you know, there's a, there's a moment for holding your tongue and just experiencing reality without getting into an involved argument about something. That seems to me a fairly fundamental observation that, that any culture could have come up with. But because you come up with a phrase and then you think, hmm, that's a special phrase. Yes, I shouldn't think anyone <laughs> else has thought of that, you know? It's sort of, but you don't know whether somebody – most people don't know another culture well enough to be able to tell, so they just assume that everything that they know in their culture is unique and special to that culture, but not at all. We're all humans. We're all doing the same thing, just differently, you know? Talking about how language works, I was – well, I was happy to see that you are um, not in any way promoting the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, <laughs> i.e. that people are restricted in what they are able to yeah. think and conceptualize by, um, by the limitations of their language. But I wonder what you, whether you've encountered, I don't know if Guy Deutscher is the originator of this idea, but certainly the popularizer of it, yeah. um, the idea that what that uh, what does make a impact you is um, the things that your language forces you to specify. So, for example, if I'm speaking German, um, I can't, and I want to tell you that I had lunch with a friend yesterday. I have to reveal whether the friend was male or female. Yeah. Um, and I was thinking about that when I read uh, when you were talking about the different terms for. I, the first person, yes, uh, yeah, the first person pronoun in Japanese. Yes. So I wondered if you had uh, thoughts about that theory. Um, no, I, I well, only to the extent that I disagree. I mean, I, I think, mm. um, for example, Japanese and, and Chinese do not distinguish singular and plural. Now, you because you, you talk about you know um, things. I mean, you can if you if you have to. You, you can. I mean, if you say, for example, um, their horse, you know, meaning there's a horse over there, uh, it would be the same in Japanese whether it was a number of horses or, or not. You would just point and say their horse, you know. So um, everything is uncountable, really. That's the way to think of it, really, is that they're, and the nouns are uncountable. So just as we talk about money or water or, um, furniture, you know, as uncountable nouns. 
you you know we say there's there's some furniture there you don't say how many furnitures so mm -hmm. japanese and chinese are, don't distinguish between those things on the other hand for example with japanese you have to distinguish between living things and non-living things when you say there is an insect that's a living thing so you have to use a, a word that instead of, you have to divide is into two parts let's call it us and as you know there as an insect and there as a telephone you know because it's not living so it's you have to you are forced to discriminate you have forced to decide whether something is alive or not when you say there is something here um or for example in social relations if you talk about somebody's brother or sister you have to make a decision about whether they're older or younger you can't it's, it's difficult to say just a brother or a sister you you would normally have to say the word for older brother or younger brother i mean that there is a way of doing it but it's not part of the normal discourse so it's it's i once had to translate a letter in fact one of my very first letters of one of the first pieces that i had to translate when i was working in a translation agency was from the father of a girl who was in some kind of liaison with um, an american man and he was talking about their child and it wasn't sure whether it wasn't clear whether it was a child or children or whether the child was was born or not and i was struggling to understand this letter the, to, to, to really kind of make sense of what the situation was and in the end i had to give up and i took it to a, an older translator a japanese man and to my relief, he couldn't understand it either. It was, you know, we had to phone up and ask because it was impossible to put into English without knowing more information than was given by the letter. But that's, so, you know, different languages force you to categorize different things. I mean, as you just said in German, you know, it's, you've got three genders in German, der, die, and das, so you have to make those decisions. But I don't think that that, thereby forces you to see the world in a different way i mean i i, I the, the the thing that the, one of the things that um people often mention when i talk about language they say oh did you see that film arrival you know have you seen arrival you know they they track down a, a linguist who can go and figure out how they're how they're you know communicate with them basically but it's you know it's the sapio wolf Oh, a rival. Sorry, I I heard the rival. I'm yes, sorry. I have seen right. the rival. Yeah, yes, that's the Sapir Whorf hypothesis on yes. steroids, which is totally debunked. Yes. Yeah, yes. I mean, it's, it's it was uh, it really sort of rubbed me the wrong way that film. I thought <laughs> I so, can imagine so many things wrong about it. So anyway, I I, I don't go along with that idea. Mm -hmm. The chapter on on uh, music particularly fascinated me. Mm. And one of the things I was wondering as I read it uh, was that music has this, we have this perception that music has a, an intensity of meaning. Yeah. Um, because it seems to, uh, it appeals to something that goes, is deeper than language and therefore unites us. Mm. Um, that it seems to express something that is, closer to or be analogous to something that is closer to a sort of basic fundamental even pre-linguistic experience yeah. and because i used to be a professional dancer i can really relate to this mm. idea mm. 
But I also wondered whether you feel that there is a trade-off between depth of feeling and specificity of meaning. Um, hmm. Well, if, if I mean, just to think about music for a moment, I mean, I think uh, at, at some point I talk about music having the sense of being both before and beyond language because it does seem to tap into um, a feeling that directly connects with with what we experience, whereas words are only ever describing them. So whilst you can use words in in, a, in an emotional way, that's that's kind of you know hijacking that that feeling. I mean, if you're angry, you express yourself with with emotion, for example, or, or if you're although maybe it's it's hard to express happiness in quite the same way that that music can make you feel. Um, but I think fundamentally, you know, lang language is, is, a, is you were talking about earlier when you read that passage from the the, uh, the chapter on identity. It's it's a it's a separating thing um, in the sense of the um, I was just going to say of the um, the physical space that we inhabit. I mean, our, our bodies. What what we have is a mechanism for sensing things. That that's really what our body is. I mean. Um, it's it's pure sensation, and language is is a way of understanding it by tagging it. But that puts you in an abstract space. So, so music. I mean, I quote Stephen Pinker. I, I still think his phrase Audi "auditory cheesecake" is such a wonderful expression. It's a sort of it gives you a kind of a there's a, a rich taste to it. And it may be that the fact that we're able to appreciate languages is precisely because we've trained ourselves to appreciate feeling and become conscious of feeling in a way that maybe otherwise we would only be aware of if you um, follow the distinction I made between awareness and, and consciousness. I mean, awareness in my understanding of it is, is what you, is this, the sensation of the senses, if you like, it's, it's the feeling, the unmediated feeling, whereas consciousness is when you're able to stand back and, and notice that you are experiencing it and then give it a name and, and so forth. And I, I think um, it may be that in the process of evolution that went with language, because as I figure it, language is something that drove the growth of the brain rather than the other way around. I mean, it's, it's typically thought that language was a sort of, only became possible when we when when we were ready for it when our brain had reached the point where it was language ready although it's never explained how that that could be the case i i think that it was language that drove the growth of the brain because suddenly there was a reason why it was going to be more useful to be smarter than than stronger because there's no point in having a big brain if you can't you know then thereby fight as well as as other people or or in other words, you're, you're, it doesn't give you any survival advantage. Whereas through language, suddenly being smarter is of evolutionary benefit, not just for the individual, but for the whole group that you're part of, because smart people can spread their ideas amongst the whole group, and that benefits everybody. So there's, there was a huge evolutionary um, reason why language would cause us to become brainier, literally, our brains expanded three times since we were chimpanzees and with that growth in brain power 
inevitably came an enhanced sensitivity because that's what the brain does. It's it's sort of it's able to. Um, if it's about pattern recognition, then having more processing power will enable you to see more patterns. So that may be why we are more sensitive to music than, say, animals that appear very don't appear to be sensitive to music very much. Sorry, that was a bit of a long ramble, but I hope that made some sense. No, it made a lot of sense. Um, dancing is very peculiar in a way because it's an attempt to translate one. Um, one kind of uh language if you like um although it's not it's not like a language because it it lacks that kind of it lacks that digital mm. quality you can't say that you can't say that a um a c sharp represents x <laughs> um you can't map musical notes onto individual no. specific meanings in that way no. um you have this sense of a holistic experience mm. um Although composers will tell you that they can, you know, create, they can, you know, um, evoke moods in certain ways. There are certain, you know, techniques that they use. I mean, and the soundtracks of movies obviously exploit that. Yes, but it's it's a mood. It's not a precise. Yes. It's not a precise feeling. So I could use music to demonstrate to you that I'm angry, for example. Yeah. But I couldn't tell you what I'm angry about yeah. just using the music yes. without any words. Yeah. Um, and dance, of course, is very similar. Of course, there are certain movements also evoke certain types of moves. There are ways of moving that are moving faster or slower, making larger or smaller gestures, mm. making more rounded or more staccato gestures, which we which we tend to refer to as using the kiki booba concept. When we're talking about dance, we talk about kiki and booba moves, more sharper, spikier and rounder. Mm. Um, but there, um, even though neither language has has the kind of precision of languages made up of words. Nevertheless, there are very intuitive kinds of ways of moving in dance that fit certain ways uh, ways of hearing music. So right. anyway, I think I think that's interesting. And I I wrote a book about dance and it was surprising that um how many people felt quite hostile to the idea that I was even trying to um, describe the dance experience in words. Really? Yeah. I had a surprising number of dancers felt that I was somehow sullying the experience by translating it into the inferior and more sterile and more intellectualized hmm. medium of words. Well, is that famous quote about, you know, um, Writing about music is like dancing about architecture. Mm, yes. I'm, I mean, I guess that sort of taps into what people perhaps felt in, in that sense. Yes, yes. Although it also, um, of course, it's, it's less immediate, but it also helps you to, you can provide analogies in language. Yes. People can then relate to and they can um, see those analogies as, describing their own dance experiences okay. and it also enables them to draw interesting parallels between life and dance in both directions so um 
that's why that's why I wrote the book. Well, I think you were right to do so. I mean, I, I think you know one should be encouraged to write about anything, really, because it's all about mm. expanding um, our common experience and our common understanding of things. I mean, I'm not a dancer, so I would learn something about dance if I if I read your book. Uh, it would it would you know, however imperfectly, give me a sense of what it means or, or why you do it or, or, you know, that's that's a valuable thing for me, even if it doesn't give me the experience that it would if I were to be to learn to dance myself. But, I mean, that that's in essence what the, what the whole language thing is about. I mean, to say you, you shouldn't write about something is uh, kind of like a backward step for civilization. <laughs> I think at one point you talk about your own library and you say um, that um, some of the books in there are the product of an entire human life. Yeah. And the number of hours it would have taken to have the experiences that went into, that informed the writing of those books mm. um, is astronomical. Yeah. And therefore, what writing does is allow us to um, give people information about experience and a um, a certain kind of analogy to a vicarious experience. Yes. Give them a sense of what the experience might have been like. Yes. And, you know, even if, if not experience, just sort of the... Uh, processes of thought i mean opening mm, your mind yeah. to another way of thinking about something and and that's you know if you hadn't read about it you might never have thought of it and you probably wouldn't in fact so it's and then you have the the whole process of the evolution of media i mean when we started out with language you could only talk to people who were immediately in, around you and as soon as once they'd forgotten what you said, then there was no means of recalling it. And then we invented writing, and suddenly it was possible to share thoughts more broadly than with just the people around you. And then, obviously, you move on. You've got radio, television, the Internet, everything. I mean, the whole – I mean, what we're doing right now. I mean, I've never met you. You, I don't know where you are, but we're having this conversation, and it can be heard by anybody around the world. That's an extraordinary thing. I mean, the, just the potential for us to be connected is growing exponentially, which means that we're headed, must be headed, to a world where we consider ourselves to be one culture, one species that's doing the same thing. That, that's, that's a wonderful thing. I mean, it does, that doesn't mean that it's going to be a monoculture. Far from it. We're all going to be, just as we're all different individuals with different tastes, we're all going to bring that in, but it's all something that we can all access. And there's no sense that, oh, well, you can't understand that because you're not Parsi or, you know, you, whatever. It, it's just ridiculous. And that's going to become increasingly ridiculous as an idea, I think, as I hope it is anyway, as we move forward. Absolutely. I think that might be a good place to, um, to end. Hmm. Um, unless, there's, uh, unless there's a question that you feel that you wish I had asked that I haven't asked you. Um, no, except as you sort of mentioned a little earlier in, in terms of touching on where this takes us in terms of what's happening in the world now, because, mm. um, it strikes me that if you, if you look overall at the, the trajectory of, of history and the way in which cultures have, have learned to deal with, 
Well, deal with violence, really, is what it comes down to. I mean, um, you know, humans having bodies attached to their heads, so we can't just live in this abstract world. We need to eat and we need to do all those other things that keep us alive. And therefore, there's competition over resources. And traditionally speaking, that's led to war and people fight and kill each other. Um, but through history, obviously, we have found ways which have also involved fighting, but we've, we've managed to live together with disparate groups that are able to settle their disputes through words, essentially. I mean, if I have an argument, if I live next to you and we have an argument about which part of the land behind us belongs to me or you, then we could um, have an argument about it and come to blows. Or and if we did do that, however, we one of us would be arrested or both, and ultimately would end up in a court where we would have the opportunity to make our case and it would be heard by a judge or a jury and a decision would be made and we would be bound by that decision. It would be essentially, you know, the, the argument over resources would be decided by words and by the argument, by the nature of the argument. And the fact that I am or I'm not stronger than you or we were able to settle it physically is, is now irrelevant because that's not how... Um, that's not an equitable way of doing it. The fact that one of us just happens to be stronger than the other shouldn't be the reason why I should, one of us should grab more than the other one unfairly. It should be an argument that is heard um, intellectually and resolved at that level. And that is what we have done. That's what, and opening that out a little bit more, that is what democracy is. Democracy is about allowing societies to hear the voice of all their participants in however attenuated a fashion, because elections don't allow you to do it that often, but at least we have the opportunity to voice what we want, and that is then decided by majority decision. Not perfect, but better than having a war every four years. So if we've decided that that is a, an evolutionary stable strategy, and it's not so much that we've decided it, that's that's what it is. It is a, a more stable way of dealing with competing demands on a limited set of resources. So we've done that at the national level now. Essentially, if you look at any country through history that's got a long enough history, there's been a series of internal wars and disputes, civil wars, what have you, and they end up with finally a country where all these previously warring provinces and elements within their geography have settled down within a larger unit and those ongoing disputes such as they are are settled by political means. So that works at the level of countries and these countries can be very big. So it's not an issue of size as such, it's an issue of the principle. Now, insofar as we are looking at the world as a whole, then we have since the Second World War set up a thing called the United Nations, which is supposed to be a forum where we apply the same process. In other words, if there are international disputes between states, then the United Nations is the forum where that should be sorted out. And if it is not so sorted out, then it's the place where we decide how to maintain international peace and security in the jargon. That is what the United Nations is, is supposed to be doing. And... Um, as we all know, it, it, it is not. That has not been the case since you know 1945. There have been something like 200 separate wars and 
um, uh, violent conflicts around the globe, which the UN has done very little to, to sort out, although there are some exceptions where it has been successful. And the main reason that it hasn't been able to do that is because there's a veto in the Security Council. Now, I argue in my book, at the end of my book, that this ultimately is just unworkable. And not only is it unworkable because it blocks things up, but that is the very thing that we have fought against in all the democratic countries down through history, because a veto is something that a king or a dictator um, wields. It's basically, I'm the boss and you do what I say, that's it. And that's not, that is not an evolutionary stable strategy because eventually people who um, uh, uh, suffer under this system rise up and, and overthrow it. That's, that's going to happen. Even if it's then replaced with another dictator, that, that's a, not a stable way of doing it. So we're now in a situation where the, the highest level of discourse, of language, of engagement through language with trying to resolve international issues is completely stymied by a veto. Now, that was the substance of what President Zelensky said yesterday in that incredible impassioned speech that he made. He's basically saying, listen, guys, your number one job, Article 1.1, it says here, maintain international peace and security. That is your job. That is your only job. Don't even tell me about the other articles. If you're not dealing with Article 1, then you might as well give up and go home. So let's, you know, let's deal with this now. And, and he's right. And it may be that we cannot deal with it now, then it is going to take time to do, and Ukraine will burn in the meantime, and God knows how many other places. But until we deal with that, we're, we're not going to have peace in the world. And it's, um, we, we will have to face up to that at some point. I think that's, that's what I wanted to say. <laughs> yeah, it's very important. Thank you for saying that. Um, and I will also link to your ARIO article, which mm. um, expands on that topic as well. Yeah. Um, and I just want to say I, I highly, highly enjoyed the book, very much recommended. Um, I think it was a slightly uneven reading experience for me. But if I took just the kind of um, the th my three or four favorite chapters, then I think that would be Probably, possibly my favorite book that I've read this year. Wow. Um, my favorite nonfiction book that I've read this year. Uh, at its good points, the book is really wonderful, um, very um, refreshing and clear, simple, limpid prose, um, and ex but while exploring some quite profound and subtle issues. So thank you so much for that, Simon, and thank you for joining me. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Nice to talk to you. Have a wonderful week, everyone. You have been listening to Two for Tea, a podcast hosted by me, Iona Italia, and produced in association with Ario Magazine, with the assistance of sound engineer Justin Ward. Show notes are provided by Daniel Sharp. If you enjoyed this episode, share it widely, leave a review on your favourite podcast app, and please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash ario, A-R-E-O, or patreon.com slash 2 for T. Have a wonderful week.